Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome to the Portal podcast. Um, I'm joined today with Dr. Leslie Deacon as usual. Hello, welcome. <laughs> and we also have Louise and Carrie here with us today to talk about their research. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Louise, do you want to start? Um, hi, I'm Dr. Louise Harvey Golden. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in public health, um, and I'm here today to talk about our research with Eastern European women. And I'm Carrie Phillips. I'm a senior lecturer in social work, um, and I was involved also in um, the data collection um, of the project with Eastern European women. Thank you both for joining us. So, would you do you want to start off telling us, um, like, what the research was about, so how it came about, what it's involved, and anything interesting about that? Um, I can start if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to start with, the university was approached by ICOS, who are the International Community Organisation of Sunderland, um, and they were interested in knowing more about the experiences um, of the people they support. Mm -hmm. Um, So we spoke to Mikhail Chankowski and um, Julia Weisoka, who both work for ICOS, um, and they were concerned about some of the things that particularly the women accessing their women's group, um, you know difficulties they'd had um, Mm. kind of getting support, engaging with services um, and they wanted to commission some research, you know, actually speaking to these women Mm -hmm. um, and asking them, you know, what what are the difficulties that that they were facing? Where are those women that were accessing the group, were they from different countries? Like, what's the sort of makeup of the people? ICOS supports any um, migrant to the right. UK, particularly the Sunderland area, but across the northeast. Yeah. Um, but their women's group um, tends to be sort of the people who tend to to go there um, are from Eastern European countries such right. as Poland, um, right. Romania. You know. Yeah. I think one of the <laughs> one of the problems that that we kind of came across um, wasn't it, Louise, was a definition of Eastern European because geographically yeah. that's not. A very well-defined area, yeah. Um, but you know, predominantly women who've come over to the UK when countries such as um, Romania joined the EU. Right. Okay. So technically from EU countries, but who historically are Eastern European. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did this sort of then research develop from just having access to the group to what you've come up with? Um, so after. A- several conversations with ICOS about the you know the the types of issues that they were um, hearing from the Eastern European women that they were working with um, we came up with the idea of carrying out a piece of research um, with Eastern European women mm-hmm. and also with service providers that work with Eastern European women so the key aims of that research were to look at the experiences of Eastern European women in terms of whether or not they were experiencing hate crime and forms of discrimination according mm-hmm. to the Equality Act. Um, we also wanted to um, look at any um, issues or barriers that Eastern European women had in access and healthcare and support services. So those were sort of the you know those those were the key aims. 
Um, we started the research in 2021, 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and the research did, you know, it, it was it was quite a long project. It yeah. did, you know, we, we were collecting research throughout that year. Um, and during that period of 2021, we were still within COVID restrictions mm-hmm. and periods of lockdown. Um, so obviously that sort of prolonged the project and, and access and the women. Yeah. Um, so just briefly, the, the research involved a survey with Eastern European women living in the northeast, well, living in Tynemweer, um, where we we surveyed, we'd done an online survey with 127 Eastern European women, um, and we looked at their experiences of discrimination, hate crime and their access to services. All right. We then followed this up with um, focus groups um, and small discussions and some interviews with um, a small subsample of the Eastern European women and also some um, interviews and focus groups with service providers in the northeast who were working with those women. Mm-hmm. So that that was really the you know the project in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, don't really think there's anything else I can see around. No, that Just sounds good. The, the research aims because Carrie mentioned that um, ICOS had said there were some things that came up in in the women's group that they ran. So, did those research aims that you just talked about, Louise? Did they come from the women themselves initially? Is that how they how, how you kind of decided what you were going to focus on? How did that come about to focus on those particular aspects? Should I answer that? Because yeah. um, I think the the main um, sort of way we designed the the survey and particularly interview questions was um, our colleague Julia from ICOS um, spoke to the women in the group mm-hmm. um, because she's <coughs> kind of facilitated that group for a long time. She, you know, knows um, the women involved and she was able to ask them, well, what are your priorities? And they spoke about things like um, interpreting services, access to healthcare, being repeatedly asked for documentation um, were some of their biggest concerns, and so those were the things that we tried to draw out mm-hmm. um, in our in our interviews. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, obviously, for this podcast, we're particularly interested in your findings around the issues of domestic abuse. Because for this series, what we're we're doing is is looking at that as the main topic and uh, because it's interesting we're kind of talking to different people who domestic abuse might be all they do in terms of research but for others it's just you do something and then this comes up as one of your findings which is obviously the case for you guys so I know in um, because obviously I read your reports which we will put a link to in our show notes won't we Sarah (laughs) and uh, it means people can access that but I think one of the terms I thought was quite interesting is you um, because obviously you you looked at other research around it first was this idea of hyper precarity so it with regard to their like employment and things like that their vulnerability so I just wonder could you just share with the people listening a little bit about what that means and what that looked like okay so the the term hyper precarity so what what the wider research actually showed us, because obviously we, we reviewed the, the wider literature, was that um, Eastern European women living in the UK were facing um, hyper-precarity due to several reasons, so several mm-hmm. sort of main factors, I guess. So some of the key things that, that, that lead to this are that 
According to the evidence, compared to Eastern European men living in the UK, Eastern European women are less likely to be in full-time employment Mm -hmm. and they're also more likely to um, be on zero-hour contracts. Um, Another issue that actually feeds into this is that, um, like all women and especially migrant women and also Eastern European women, we tend to have less flexibility in terms of the work, the employment that we can actually take. Right. So this obviously impacts on the women's ability to be able to gain full-time employment mm-hmm. um, because, you know, women are, and, and the research showed us that also migrant and Eastern European women are disproportionately responsible for childcare. So this obviously limits the types of employment opportunities that they can take which then leads to precarity in in employment, you know, zero-hour contracts, um, you know, situations where they may be more likely to be exploited in employment. Um, The the research shows that, um, and again, this is linked with the other factors, that... um, there's evidence that Eastern European women experience greater difficulties in gaining settled status, so actually gaining residency. And again, that's in comparison to Eastern European men. And the reason for that is because of these issues with employment. So very often migrant women and Eastern European women are um, tend to be um, more likely to be dependent upon a partner or, or a husband mm-hmm. um, for, you know, financially dependent, um, their settled status, gaining residency and settled status might be dependent on their spouse or their husband, um, you know, access to and, and entitlements to benefits and welfare and housing support and, and all of those types of things, they m- might all be dependent upon their husband or spouse. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> That's that's the type of picture that I'm trying to create with regards to the hyper-precarity. So it's quite complex and multi-layered. So what we essentially have is all these issues that women face anyway with regards to access and employment, being disproportionately responsible for childcare. Um, Eastern European women face an extra level of this vulnerability and precariousness because um, of their you know their their lack of settled status um language barriers being migrants and living mm-hmm. in the UK so you know that in turn really leaves them highly vulnerable to um domestic violence and abuse um and in particularly so when they are dependent upon a husband or spouse um and another another sort of I guess layer of this is that um, in addition to it um, increasing their vulnerability to um, domestic violence and abuse, also women who are already in domestic violence, uh, domestic abuse relationships, mm-hmm. um, this hyper precarity actually impedes their ability to be able to one seek support, yeah, and two be able to escape abusive relationships. Yeah. Um, one more thing, sorry, carry on, pass it over to you, is that, and, and, and this is again something that affects all um, migrant women, is the lack of social support and family support. Mm-hmm. So often these are women who have left all their friends and their mm-hmm. family behind, you know, and, and we know from the research, we know from the evidence, you know, we know as you were all social workers, <laughs> um, 
that that actually those informal support networks are actually really really key in escaping domestic abuse situations so what we're actually seeing here is a really toxic mix of um, various factors that are impacting on Eastern European women's lives that um, that, that leaves them vulnerable to exploitation yeah. at work, to um, domestic violence and abuse, and to other forms of exploitation like modern day slavery, um, you know, that, that type of yeah. thing. I don't mm. know. If, yeah. Do, do you have Sorry. any... Um, I'm just wondering while you're talking about this, because obviously your, your survey did cover a lot of participants in it and you did follow up focus groups, and I'm just wondering if you've got a sense for us and for the listeners about um, the prevalence of, of domestic abuse for these women we don't really because it wasn't like you said leslie this the whole theme around domestic abuse Mm. is one that wasn't kind of designed into the research Mm. it was a finding that came out Mm -hmm. as particularly service providers were talking to us Mm -hmm. um so we didn't actually directly ask the women about abuse in the home (coughs) Mm -hmm. we were actually asking about abuse on the street exploitation at work hate crime that kind Mm -hmm. of thing Um, and it was only later when we were looking through our transcripts that we thought actually there's quite a lot here about domestic abuse Mm -hmm. and I think one of the difficulties that any researcher has is is finding out about prevalence because when you look at um, home office statistics um, the you know national um, office for statistics they don't break things down Um, you know they're monitoring of things like ethnicity is very vague Mm -hmm. um and you know are we are we describing um people from eastern europe as 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 european as white as mixed as you know it's it's a problem when you're trying to find out how big a issue this is yeah Mm -hmm. and even if even if you could um unpick that from the data which it sounds like it's not possible to do um, that would only be the tip of the iceberg yes. anyway, probably. That would yeah, really we, capture mm-hmm. the true picture of what's what's happening. We, we know that we, for any, yes. any population mm-hmm. group, don't we, who's experiencing domestic abuse. Yeah, um, and one thing I was going to say about what Louise was describing is in some ways this isn't news because this this kind of exploitation and precarity has been happening for migrant women, you know, for goodness knows how long, but the difference that we found is the impact of Brexit and the impact of the UK leaving the EU mm-hmm. means that there's a whole new layer of bureaucracy um, mm-hmm. for women who, you know, 10 years ago might have assumed that they could move to the UK and live here with no issue um, and now suddenly finding that they're susceptible to all the risks that migration brings. Yeah, because when, when you were talk- when Louise was just explained that, in my head I was thinking, hang, but they were... But- you know, Poland was part of the EU, but then the issue is that we're not. Yes. What was the impact of Brexit then? You said it obviously changed things for the women, but can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's precisely that, that, you know, when um, everybody was quite, I say everybody, when the UK and places like Poland were coexisting in the EU, there was some restrictions, but a certain amount of freedom of movement. So <laughs> moving to the UK, getting a job, you know, that wasn't as precarious as it is now Mm -hmm. Um, and what particularly places like ICOS Citizens Advice have found is that um, increasingly 
you know, there was quite a lot of publicity about needing to apply for settled status, but some people had lived here so long they didn't think it applied to them or they mm. didn't think it applied to their children or, um, you know, they wanted to family and friends to move over. Um, and also it links into what Louise was saying about the difficulties of leaving an abusive relationship actually part of that was proving you've lived in the UK long enough to apply for settled status because what the government is interested in is um, I read a really interesting piece of research that called it um, ties that count so things like employment you know having national insurance numbers things like that are different to ties that bind which are family friends Mm -hmm. community you know belonging a feeling Mm -hmm. of belonging that doesn't matter if you're applying for settled status, only the paperwork that you may not have because you've been dependent on a partner, you've been caring mm-hmm. for children. Mm-hmm. You can't prove you've been in the UK for more than five years. Which mm-hmm. makes more issues and complexity around the decision to, to leave if that environment is a abusive environment, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think you touched on, on that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that came out of our... Um, interviews with service providers was again it's not new that in some abusive relationships immigration status is used as a weapon so either withholding somebody's documents allowing their status in the UK to lapse um, using it as a threat if you leave I'll shop you to the home office Mm -hmm. Um, again that's not new but it's new in terms of those people who were you know who are EU citizens but now have fewer rights in the UK Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. okay I was just processing that. Sorry, that's really interesting because, yeah, because that's really. I suppose it sort of reflects the time, like that research is about a certain time and and space, and it's within the context of that time. So you've obviously that's what's quite unique to what you guys have done is mm-hmm. that at that moment in time you have the the repercussions mm-hmm. on those people um, of of the decision to leave, and therefore they're experiencing these sort of bureaucratic problems that are compounding the what is abusive relationships and trying to seek support for that and I think one of the was it in one of the focus groups Louise one of the women spoke about receiving a letter to her house asking her to prove her address ah that makes sense yeah very logical that just struck us as very what's the word could you just say, well, I received it? So, yeah, <laughs> so that's usually, it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a word for it, isn't there, where things are... Yeah. Yeah, I can't it's think of it. I, loop. I just think mm-hmm. of out-of-control yeah. bureaucracies that yeah. just um, have gone... Yeah, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like it's... This is why I find um, things about bureaucracy quite interesting because a lot of people find, oh, it's a boring area, it's just about paperwork and structures and organisations, but actually the impact it has on people's lives so the people who are experiencing this and then on the professionals who are trying to do something about it mm-hmm. who are getting stuck because, well, we know these people need some support. How do we get that for them? And so I wonder if you wanted to tell us a little bit about some of those sort of themes around the impact of like the language and communication, the lack of access mm-hmm. to that, um, the interpreting services and the issue around the documentation. Did you mm-hmm. Was that part of what you found from, from the participants and from the people and the professionals as well? Yeah, so <clears throat> I mean, I'll let I'll let Carrie tell you about the the, um, the service providers because Carrie spoke to the service providers. Okay. But with regards to the, um, the the women in the focus groups with the Eastern European women, um, 
there were a lot of concerns around Brexit and how mm-hmm. um, this was going to impact on their entitlement to, to welfare, their entitlement, their rights um, to reside in the UK, etc., etc. Um, and within this, we also have these huge challenges and barriers that a lot of the women were having around um, language and communication. Mm-hmm in accessing not just services but actually you know in in health literature in advice mm-hmm. leaflets you know the mm-hmm. the language barriers aren't just in the face to face communication yeah. it's within the information and the guidance and the literature as well mm-hmm. so there were you know there was a lot of um challenges raised around that and what actually women were telling us that they were doing and what their friends were doing and what their family members were doing is actually relying on friends and family to mm-hmm. interpret. So there may be inter- an interpretation service available, but it might not be available within a particular language. So there was a lot right. of reliance on, on you know, family and friends to actually taking them into the GP surgery, taking them to medical appointments, mm-hmm. listening in on phone calls to actually act as an interpreter for them. Right. Now, this obviously has huge um, repercussions and and implications. So, for example, you know, if a woman is um, suffering from mental ill health, um, to actually have to take a close family member or a friend to those appointments and talk about their their vulnerabilities and their mental health is actually, I mean, on one level, is really embarrassing, but on another level, it also, it's, it, it, it you know, it's, it's really <laughs> contravenes their their right to, you know, yeah. their human rights to privacy. Yeah, you know, they're opening up their lives and their health issues and their mental health issues to this really small support network that they've actually got in the UK. Yeah, and. Another level of this, um, which a, a woman spoke to us about, was a friend who um, who had a cancer diagnosis and they had to take the child to interpret for them. So it isn't just thinking about the impact that this has on the human rights of these women mm-hmm. who are relying on their friends and family to interpret. It's also the the, the mental health of their children. Yeah. You know, who are having mm-hmm. to hear and relay these messages. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine being a child and, and having, you know, yeah. having that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And having to hear all of that yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And then when we really think about, like, the, you know, increasing vulnerability and risk to domestic violence, if you're relying upon your family and a very small support network, you know, and a very close community, you know, we know that migrant communities form communities within so say for example the eastern european community yeah. in sunderland you know and the the african community in sunderland we know people form these communities yeah. um so you know if if you have a woman in a domestic violence domestic abuse situation and she's relying upon a family member or uh, someone from this support network to actually translate yeah. and interpret <clears throat> information and accessing yeah. services how how on earth is this woman going to be able to access services for support and to actually ex- escape a domestic abuse relationship yeah. because mm-hmm. 
there's, there's no escaping. No, it's you know, making me think that potentially the, yeah. the the abusive person is that interpreter for them as Possibly, well. Possibly, yeah. That or they might that might create, yeah, because yeah. then they don't have an opportunity even to mm-hmm. disclose no. because mm-hmm. that person might be with them. And whether or not, you know, whether or not the people, you know, what is the status of the perpetrator within that small yeah. community? Yeah. You know, maybe the perpetrator within that small community has a lot of power. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the disclosing to other members of the community that, you know, they might be more likely to defend the perpetrator as opposed to protect and support the victim. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's quite... It's con- it's concerning, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because it's um, in in doing this as a, you know as the series for the podcast, it is about in another podcast we've got. It's the fact that actually what it, a lot of the issues are that it's very much reliant on on the victim to get themselves out of the situation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. get them out of the. Ha- they've got to leave the house. They've got, and it's not so much about then the the perpetrator in these, and it, and it shares a similarity with obviously what you're saying about the, these challenges in these communities, which means that it's not this necessarily this open safe space in which the person can say, mm-hmm. you know what, so this is happening because mm-hmm. it's hard enough for that individual to. I see that this is mm-hmm. not right and this shouldn't mm-hmm. be going on mm-hmm. and then they've got to speak out and then there's another a- area of like mm-hmm. where there's barriers so it was just making me because we we do this in the podcast we because we listen to all of you and we think oh <laughs> you guys have said this and that connects yeah. up there and I think there's a real fundamental problem there that, that this is mm-hmm. always about actually the the victims getting themselves out and not enough not that we have the answer but not enough about actually but they're a victim in that situation so actually we sh- we need things to be going to them to mm-hmm. make it easier and it sounds to me like there's always another barrier mm-hmm. which well, is obviously is, what you're yeah. find you found in the research I mean even there was something that I didn't mention there but the the you know women who have got children as well right you know there's that when mm-hmm. when when they're facing this what we you know what we're calling hyper precarity there's obviously the anxiety that if they do disclose domestic violence or abuse then the children could be removed right so yeah. that sort of fear yeah. uh, around how that's going to pan out for them yeah yeah or whether or not you know if they are reliant upon a husband or a partner whether or not um you know that that husband or partner would be able to take the children away yes um so yeah because mm-hmm. you were saying before about that the 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 part the rely of oh, the reliance that they have on that partner mm-hmm. the, those vulnerabilities around the employment mm-hmm. um around their sort of position in in the, the the society in the community yeah. then gets compounded by all mm-hmm. that which mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that's what came out to me in reading your, your reports was about the fact that this is quite a complex mm-hmm. situation there's lots of different things that are mm-hmm. you know and the, and the domestic abuse is one part of this mm-hmm. but the the barriers are quite significant definitely did yeah. you find this with uh, obviously what the because um, you spoke to the professionals and the yes. service providers carry yeah yeah I mean if I can, if I may I wanted to just yeah. add something to what Louise mm, was course, saying yeah. was obviously it is a huge concern when people um, maybe don't have fluent English and are not able to access information and resources but actually one really I guess interesting contrast was. Um, I would view it possibly as a limitation of our research that the women who took part in the focus groups um, were offered interpreters but didn't accept because they were all yeah, fluent, fluent right, okay. in English. Yeah. So we didn't hear as much 
from women who were less fluent or confident. Right, okay. Um, but in the going back to the point, in the focus groups, um, they spoke about assumptions that they don't speak English. Um, mm-hmm. And assumptions based on accent, assumptions based on, you know, their ability at work, their ability to access information. Um, and these were women who'd either, you know, lived in the UK a long time or studied English or, yeah. you know, they, mm-hmm. from their point of view, they had no issue. What was the contrast, though, was that some service providers said that that, um, that can be difficult because at times of high stress, fluency in a second or additional language can become impaired yeah um or you know they gave an example of police attending um a violent situation the the woman the woman doesn't want an interpreter but the precision of her english and, yeah. and what she's mm-hmm. reporting the police are saying is maybe not 100% mm-hmm. yes and therefore the there can be miscommunications based on heightened emotion yeah um, Absolutely. as well yeah. as as language proficiency um, yeah, because anyone in those situations, yes. mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just and yeah. There's, there's also <laughs> the issue that even the uninformal, so even the the formal interpreters, mm-hmm. there's a high possibility that they could be from the community yes. as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that from in practice yeah. when mm-hmm. you know uh-huh. there was only you know depending on the language as well, there was that issue of actually mm-hmm. there's there's an ethical problem here because Mm -hmm. yes they're professionals and we're not questioning that side of it at all but it's very awkward for the person Mm -hmm. that you're trying to speak to that it means somebody in the community does know all of this Mm -hmm. so it's then a Mm -hmm. choice they're having to make a conscious choice to accept that person so you can understand Mm -hmm. why they might say no I don't want Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. like I don't want this person in the community to know that this is happening Mm -hmm. or even if they're not in the community somebody being privy to yeah. such a wide range of situations yes. it might be health it might be criminal justice it yeah. might be education you know somebody who I, I think interpreters do a fantastic job yeah, but course. they're not maybe perceived by the people needing that support mm-hmm. yes as as almost being allowed to have privy to all of that mm-hmm. personal mm-hmm. knowledge yeah do you think because maybe not enough is is done to sort of support um, that individual to understand that this is this is another professional and yeah. therefore they're not going to breach and I, and I'm sure they do go through things like mm-hmm. that but it it is awkward isn't it it's something mm-hmm. that you know where if English is your first language you don't go through that extra level mm-hmm. of having another because you know my experience of life is many professionals get involved for what for there's one issue mm-hmm. you got loads of professionals and it's really annoying and the more you got, the more you're constantly repeating yourself. Because mm-hmm. I think you were saying, were you saying that's something that the, the women talked about, about having to re- share information again and again? Constantly produce documentation. Oh, was it documentation yeah. or something? Documentation, right, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, something to add to that is that the, the issue of um, government and NHS employees gatekeeping mm-hmm. services. Right. With possibly not all of the one authority and knowledge to do so. Um, So an example might be um, a a GP receptionist asking somebody they perceived to be a migrant, um, and especially so since Brexit, you know, with all the increased media coverage, thinking that it's their responsibility to actually check 
right. nor whether or not they are um, eligible to use a particular service. Right, okay. So, you know, kind of frontline staff taking it upon themselves to execute these checks themselves. I wonder, yeah. just while we're, <laughs> right. we're kind of back on to Brexit and the, and the issues that that raised, it made me think about our chat with Rick as well. So Oh, yeah, in, in the, the last first, series, um, yeah. podcast series, we talked to Dr Rick Bowler about his paper on... Um, Brexit and, mm-hmm. and the rise in racism mm-hmm. and you know we, we have seen that so I'm thinking mm-hmm. what you're saying kind of there are a lot of barriers to these women accessing services whether or not they can actually find out about them in the first place mm-hmm. um, all, all these things that we've talked about but I just wonder if there was anything about that that came up as well in terms of kind of the environment feeling hostile to them whether yeah. they felt actually welcomed into services or um, whether that was an additional barrier that they faced so the you know government statistics clearly show us that there was a huge rise in racist hate crime and discrimination um both in the run-up to the brexit referendum Mm -hmm. and after the brexit referendum and i'm talking about increases in the thousands yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) and you know this was in large part to do with um you know, government campaigns at the time, you know, these buses with these really sort of anti-immigration um, sentiments on. Um, there was a lot of stalking um, anti-immigration sentiment within society at that mm-hmm. time, within the UK. Um, so, you know, we, we know that that was happening and we also know the evidence shows us that the Brexit referendum actually led to not just an increase in racist hate crime, but an increase in racism, um, racist discrimination and hate crime towards the Eastern European community right. within the UK. Mm-hmm. So we'd already seen quite a steady rise of of, um, of anti-immigration sentiment, you know, due to government messages and due to the media before Brexit. But with Brexit, you know, we did see a huge rise. Um, so that was something that we did sort of explore with the women. Um, and we did find in, in the survey and in the focus groups that actually Eastern European women were telling us that they were experiencing um, high levels of both racist hate crime, mm-hmm. um, racist discrimination and to a smaller extent sexist discrimination as mm. well. Right. And women did tell us that there had been an increase in this um, in the run-up to Brexit and since Brexit. Um, you know, things like um, coming home from work and being recognised as being um, a European migrant um, and being subject to um, slurs around um, the the whole Brexit narrative. Yeah. You know, you're from here, you go back home, you go back at Brexit, why are you still here? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the women were really aware of that and that did come across quite strongly in the survey findings. Right. Um, you know, women were being subject to um, racial discrimination um, in the streets, racial discrimination at work by their colleagues and by management. Mm-hmm. And this was all to do with the Brexit yeah, you know, with the Brexit narrative and the the increase in the anti-immigration sentiment, and and very often what you know what what some women told us was that because a lot of the women are um, present as um, European, yeah. so they can very often they were telling us they can pass, so to speak. Yeah. Um, 
until they um, actually speak, so yeah. until their spoken voice is heard. So what we had is women telling us that in public places where they felt particularly vulnerable, so like waiting at a metro station, being on public transport, like within the city centres, you know, mm-hmm. after certain times, passing certain people, um, you know, groups of people and things like that, um, that actually they just that they would stay silent, you know, yeah. they would make the effort um, to stay silent um, so they weren't... Um, because they felt that this would um, minimise their chances of, of a racist Yeah, of course. If they, if they stay silent, then yeah. they blend in and yeah. they don't get the attention. As soon as they talk, yeah. that's when they yeah. might be at risk. Yeah, yeah. so, wow. you know, it's... Yeah, it was quite... Yeah, that's quite, that's quite and hard. It's, and it's mm. even more isolating for women who are experiencing domestic abuse in the home as well, I would imagine, because yeah. there's no... You know, there's, might, no might escape, like there's no escape, essentially. There's no support outside yeah. of the home if they're experiencing yeah. those kinds of. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that that kind of came through as a sort of un- recurring, sort of underpinning theme is <laughs> that we're talking about a minority group or a minoritized group who aren't what I would call visible. They're not visibly yeah. different. Their skin color isn't generally different to the white British population. Yeah, and one thing that that really. Um, struck me when I was trying to even recruit for um, interviews with service providers Mm -hmm. was the number of providers who replied to my request saying well we don't really support any Eastern European people Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking well the statistics tell us they're 1% of the population of the North East so they're there. How are you not? (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, And the explanation being either that, that you know European migrants are not accessing those services yeah. because of all the reasons we talked about, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, documentation, language, etc. Or they're there, but they're not being seen as having mm-hmm. needs that they have for, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. language-appropriate yeah. information or, yeah. um, you know, all yeah. the rest of it. That's a bit of a cycle in itself because if yes. those barriers prevent them from accessing the services, the services then think, mm-hmm. oh, we don't need to it's do this a because... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was the same with the domestic abuse and older people we've done a podcast on that was the same issue that because older people are not accessing the services there's a view that they don't need them and then Mm -hmm. it becomes cyclical Mm -hmm. where the information and the the kind of Mm -hmm. awareness isn't there yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. and it was interesting because some of the um providers i spoke to were kind of foreign by organizations Mm. um and they had i would say quite a strikingly different level of knowledge than the generalist Yes, services. Mm. Yeah, um, about this specific. What what know, specific were the services issue. you included then? Obviously, not specifically naming them, but just generally what yeah. types of services? Um, there was there were all voluntary sector organisations, mm-hmm. um, and all involved in some form supporting either um, women and girls at risk of abuse or um, migrant populations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so and like I say, it was it was quite a quite difficult to recruit mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. so is that the same across both of those types of services then that report that oh we don't really work with with women from eastern europe yes yeah and mm-hmm. and particularly you know in any research there's always a difficulty people have to want to speak to you or think they've got something yeah, to say yeah um but actually particularly statutory services told us that it's not an issue they're aware of um, and uh, yeah. several several other voluntary sector organisations said, "Oh, we don't, 
focus on that population or it's not yeah. a population that we need to mm-hmm. provide support the, That's to. the problem with, I mean, my previous research around things around systems is, you know, the these gen- main, uh, when you look at generic systems, they don't know there's a problem until it really does yeah. come up in the, mm-hmm. in the face and say, yes, this is an issue and it's constantly recurring. But it is there. Mm-hmm. All of these problems are there. It's just about whether or not their systems are set up to notice them. Mm-hmm. I, I was talking to a practitioner recently. They were saying that, that pr- predominantly the issues they're facing are around domestic abuse. And we were discussing how that's because they're looking for them now. They're now looking yes. for them and they see them. Mm-hmm. But actually saying, oh, well, we don't we don't get a lot of issues around sexual abuse. But mm-hmm. the question was, but but have, you asked? have you asked? Are you looking? And they and they were quite honest and said, no. Mm-hmm. What we're looking at is is domestic abuse. And it's what's currently in your site because this it's so complex social work practice and working with people it's about all of their lives not just one tiny subset of it Mm -hmm. and that's the problem with the generic services are trying to make sense of a big issue but that's got all these tiny tiny parts to it Mm -hmm. and i think the other thing that came across is um louise has given quite a lot of, of awful examples of um particularly sort of discrimination hate crime you know a lot of it was around um property damage or verbal abuse wasn't it yeah but what we found again with the focus groups and talking to service providers is that it's chronically underreported because it's so common that somebody Mm. shouting go home why are you still Mm -hmm. here doesn't even register as something that could be reported um because it's so common Mm -hmm. you know it's really shocking isn't it yeah actually that's become so normal that it's not even Mm -hmm kind of thought thought about yeah. or responded mm-hmm. to it's it's really it's really normalized and routine mm-hmm. i mean the the women the women that i spoke to in the focus groups didn't even view some of the um racist abuse that they were encountering that they didn't even view that as discrimination yeah. as hate crime it was yeah. just seen as a normal part of their day a normal part of traveling home from work um yeah Uh, What I would like to raise, because I think this is something that we haven't touched on, Mm -hmm. is that because we know that all of the Eastern Europe, you know, both men and women within the Eastern European community and children, Mm -hmm. um, you know, are experiencing increased levels of racist hate crime. Yeah. Now, what what we um, found that was sort of distinct to women and also has similarities with other migrant women, is that in addition to the racist discrimination, there was quite high levels of um, sexist discrimination and a lot of sexual harassment. And this was in all areas of women's lives. This was um, at work, you know, Eastern European women suffering um, sexual harassment, very, very you know, very quite serious, I mean, all sexual harassment serious, but very serious forms of sexual harassment at work. Yeah. Being in precarious employment or being unable to financially afford to actually just make the decision to leave that employment, not being taken seriously by management, you know, always just making a joke, you know, just ignore him, that type of thing. Yeah. but not just not just the sexual harassment um, at, at work. There's also they were experiencing a lot of um, or they are experiencing a lot of sexual harassment in public as well. Right. Um, so, and this was something um, 
that was described by you know a, a few of the women. So an, an example that one um, woman gave us was um, that she tended not to go out socialising in places mm. that served alcohol. So like bars and clubs and things like that, not because she didn't like it, yeah, because of the sexual harassment that she suffered as a Eastern European woman. So there's, there seems to be, and this is still something we're, we're theorising about, and we haven't quite put our fingers on it yet. That there's a really um, negative, quite toxic, pervasive um, sexual stereotypes that relate to Eastern yeah. European women. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually feed into this um, sexual harassment narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one woman told us about, you know, a time that, you know, when they kind of stopped going out to bars and clubs um, was because they had men approaching them, asking them, one, were the sex workers or prostitutes? And then there's also the assumption that there were... Um, that they were living in poverty, mm-hmm. that, that actually the countries they come from were poor. You know, right. so one woman said, you know, she had an instance of a man sort of waving a five pound note in her face and saying, like, I bet this is lots of money where you come from. Look, I'm rich. Um, so it wasn't, mm-hmm. it's not just the racist element, it's no. not just the sexual harassment element that these women are telling us that they're very highly sexualized and yeah. that's. And that's impacting on mm-hmm. the types of sexual harassment that they're, that they're experiencing. experiencing. It does. Uh, mm-hmm. It links across to the the work because um, we have got Angie Wilcock who's done a podcast mm-hmm. so that's in this series as well, and hers was research with Thai women, mm-hmm. and she she's shared with in that around the perception of them as well. They must be part of the sex right. industry. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. we need to get you guys in touch with each other. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking yeah. to but sort of develop that. The seems every every time we. we Sort of try and map this out into some kind of intersectional model. Um, there's more things that are coming out around it that are really distinct to Eastern European women. Around that question, mm. the specific DA, I don't think we can say it's domestic abuse. I think we need to 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 place it within vogue. So the domestic abuse just captures kind of what's going on within the woman's domestic situation, whereas our research found much mm. wider forms. Like more, more around violence so against more women violence, outside uh, Yeah, I think it situates home. better within violence against women and girls mm-hmm. as opposed... So that that's the intersectional element mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fits in with Vogue and the... DVA is is within that. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to develop what this do, theoretical model. What does model. Vogue mean? Yeah. Violence against women and girls. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Oh, so I wondered yeah. why you were looking at it. I, I was like, looking at you thinking, no, I think what's you're right. Vogue? I think what's Vogue? Violence against women, yeah. Yes. A lot of what you've been talking about is much broader than yeah. just domestic abuse, isn't yeah. it? But all of those things will contribute to some of the difficulties in accessing yeah. so support I think it's for domestic yeah. abuse as well, won't yeah. we? What we're looking at is that we're... What we're seeing is distinct, and we're still not quite wet there with that, is is that the violence against women and girls that Eastern European women um, experience and the intersectional elements of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing is distinct. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your because your research was was about their experiences inside, you know, inside and outside of the home. So therefore, what you, what your research isn't identifying was what was particular in terms of the of domestic abuse between, you know, them and mm-hmm. the perpetrator of mm-hmm. that abuse. What you your research has found is that they're actually subject to. They talked about that, but yeah. they're also subject to this more broader violence against yeah. women and girls mm-hmm. within society yes. mm-hmm. which is making it a much more complex issue yes mm-hmm. yeah. 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 yeah yeah Carrie so, is there anything you would like to add no I think um, again the issue of specific concerns for Eastern European women again it's one of visibility so mm-hmm. for example um, one of our interviewees from um, service provider was talking about forced marriage for example um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that there's a perception that this is something that happens in sort of South Asian Mm -hmm. families of South Asian heritage um, or potentially amongst people with learning disabilities there's there's increased knowledge Um, but actually the forced marriage unit um, supports a lot of people um, from Romania or of Romanian heritage you know being Mm -hmm. pressured into forced marriage Again, it's about that um, often services and and even the general public are aware of issues, but they associate it with certain minoritised groups and Mm -hmm. don't realise that it affects a much wider um, Mm -hmm. subsection of of society. So I guess guess that invisibility allows them to um, develop strategies to avoid racist abuse discrimination in public but that invisibility also leads to problems with regards to raising awareness about the discrimination and hate crime and abuse that Mm. eastern european women are facing um you know getting the message out there that this is actually happening um educating and training um service providers and healthcare providers on the specific Issues and experiences yeah. of Eastern European women. So you know that I, I, I like that, Carrie. That that visible and invisible. Yeah. Um, you know that invisibility. I guess is it's a challenge, is really isn't problematic. it? Because I I've got, uh, know someone who's um, she's originally from Poland and she runs her own business. And when I met her, I'm obviously not going to give the exact details, but she, she was using a, a very English name. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her, and this is obviously just anecdotal about me who knows somebody, but I talked to her about it when, when we got to know each other. And she said it's because of the, how she would be treated. Mm-hmm. She would be treated differently because mm-hmm. I thought she had an absolutely beautiful Polish mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. And she said, but that wouldn't get me in business it wouldn't get me through the door I would have all of these challenges and difficulties and I think so it's almost like there's a coping strategy there to try and manage things that actually means that therefore they're not seen they're they're invisible Mm -hmm. and yet all of these issues are being encountered Mm -hmm. and so the services are not noticing them and not providing them so I think these kind of the the idea with this podcast is about awareness Mm -hmm. raising as Mm -hmm. well and putting this information out there Mm -hmm. so I think there's Hopefully, that's what we'll have achieved. So I'm like yeah. just pulling that round to. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel the key learning? Do you want yeah. to go for that? No, that I was just <laughs> thinking about what you were saying because it, it's almost like there needs to be both in some ways because those strategies are being not that they should have to be invisible when they're out and about, but that that helps avoid mm-hmm. 
but they need to be visible in other ways to, mm-hmm. to actually raise the awareness yeah. and have the things put in place to, mm-hmm. to stop them having to be invisible in some places. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I mentioned that some of the providers I spoke to were sort of buy-in for services mm. um, and the point that they were really keen to get across was that they're there to be a support for generalist services. They're not there to replace generalist services. Yeah. Um, but what they find they're doing is is replacing yeah. Because people, you know, don't have access, don't want to access, yeah. are not seen by generalist mm-hmm. services. So just while we're we're kind of nicely led on to this, two two final questions. What key service developments would you like to see based on this research? They're busy doing a little looking at each other. Who's going to speak? Who's going to speak? Who wants to speak? Go on, Louise. What's your recommendations Um, here? Recommendations based on our findings are, obviously, you know, we need to carry out more research into Eastern European women and um, their experiences of um, discrimination, hate crime, domestic violence and abuse, access to services. Um, that the you know the, the the knowledge in that research area is growing, but it's still in um, you know it's still within quite early stages of infancy. So we do need more research around that, um, but we need money to do that research. <laughs> <laughs> um, with regards to our recommendations um, to service providers and um, government agencies is that we um, recommend that healthcare support and other public service providers um, provide more widely information, um, widely translated information yeah. in um, a, a wider variety of languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is particularly important for local and community-based services. Um, you know, that actually those led by and for services that are um, supporting women through domestic violence and abuse um, and, and family planning and women only services, you know, so it isn't just about getting this information translated for the bigger services, you know, the bigger NHS services. We need more translated information and more interpreters within these um, really crucial led by and for and and community organisations that are actually they're the ones who are supporting the women you know those grassroots organisations but obviously you know they need money to be able to do this Um, so you know some focus around that might help to actually um, you know get on the path towards those services being able to provide um, better translation and better interpretation um, we feel that um, that there should be um, higher standards of monitoring and reporting of um, racist hate crimes, uh, especially towards the Eastern European community. Um, obviously, we do need to focus on wider um, racist discrimination and hate crimes against the BME community as a whole. But as we've established, we have the issue with this community being particularly invisible so you know some focus around monitoring and reporting specifically for this community and you know maybe even looking more into not even just the eastern european community as a whole looking into you know the different ethnicities within the eastern european community and how we can actually um you know what levels of discrimination are these um people facing and and how we can support them better 
Ooh, I've got loads. Is that enough? Or do you want? Yeah, no, that's, en- that's definitely <laughs> enough. <laughs> Is there any um, key learning that social workers should take in particular from this research? Because we're primarily aiming mm-hmm. at, at social work with this podcast. Yeah, I think one of our key messages will be not making assumptions. So mm-hmm. um, language is one of the, the things we've talked about that mm-hmm. a lot of people um, are very fluent in English or multiple languages. And it's it's about asking, you know, do you need an interpreter? Um, thinking about different circumstances yeah. where that may or may not be needed. Um, and the other kind of key thing, actually, that I would say is... Um, it's just a reminder that diversity and difference aren't always visible. Mm-hmm. I always found as um, you know a team manager or interviewing students, when we ask about um, diversity and equality, people struggle to think of examples. They think of diversity as skin colour yeah. and nothing deeper than that. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be my, my take-home message. That's great. That's great, thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Louise, for coming to talk to us today about this research. And thanks, Leslie. You're welcome. And goodbye to all our listeners. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr. Sarah Lombe. And Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye.